In, in, in Harry Potter, there's a character, Hermione Granger, and she's driven. She's an overachiever, partly because she's talented, but also because she's an outsider. She's a muggle, if you've read these novels. And uh, that puts her at a bis- bit of an ethnic disadvantage. And so she feels driven to prove herself. Now, Harry Potter is set in a boarding school, so the whole issue of schoolwork becomes the backdrop for Hermione's success. And she's very successful at school, partly because she's so stinking intelligent, but also because when she succeeds at school, she gets rewarded, and it becomes like this carrot dangling at the end of the stick. She's a very complicated person. Now, by Hermione's third year at Hogwarts, that's the uh, boarding school, she's taking on too many commitments. She gets testy and grumpy, like some of you do, present company excluded, when, you, when you're overextended. She's holding grudges. She's complaining. She's not performing well. Professor McGonagall comes to the rescue. And for any Harry Potterites, do you know what Professor McGonagall gives to Hermione Granger so that she can... Yeah, over there. Does anyone know? What is it? Wow! I'm not sure what to do with this. It's a little pendant that enables Hermione to take at one case, three classes at the same moment in time. So she can fulfill her commitments. I thought about starting the sermon with this illustration from uh, Terry Pratchett. He wrote Discworld novels, The Monks of Time. They do a similar thing. Now that's one way of dealing with busyness, right? (laughs) A bit of magic, mumbo-jumbo. But we live in this world that's designed by God to last 24 hours. Now think, he could have done whatever he needed to do a little bit different so the earth revolved, right? Rotated. Rotated, or is it revolved? Which one determines the day? Rotated either slightly faster or slightly slower so we could have had, you know, 25 hours. He could have done it, but he picked out this thing 24. And just, you know, the God we worship, it's not like it was an accident and he said, ooh. You know, could I get that back? Or it's not like it was incidental because throughout Genesis 1, God looks at the creation and he says it's good. Now, that includes the amount of time in a day. It's good. It's a good thing that there's 24 hours in a day. This pleases God and it's good for us. So the problem with being over busy is not that we need to find a way to get more time. The problem with our over-busyness isn't that there's not enough time. The problem is that we're trying to do too much. So we've been seeing over the past three weeks that at the bottom of busyness and hurry is a disordered heart. That at the bottom of over-busyness is a spiritual illness. Indeed, there are times when some of our busyness is because of things we can't control. I talked about that a few weeks ago. But for most of us, for most of our busyness, it is our fault. It's because of stuff inside of us that's driving us. 
Either the need to prove ourselves, or the fear of letting other people down or a God complex that if we don't take care of business, business isn't taken care of. I mean, there's a whole host of psychologies inside of us. It's really the issue of our heart that drives us to be so busy. At the heart of our busyness is our hearts, not our schedules. A few years ago, a lady named Madeline Bunting wrote a book about overwork. And listen what she she titled the book, Willing Slaves. That we've willingly done this to ourselves, but it's a power that's more than we can handle. Now, why do we do things like that? Why do we do things that aren't good? And why do we fail to do things that we know are good? It's because of our hearts. I'm talking, when I say the heart, the Bible, when it talks about the heart, it means the center of you, the real you, the essence of you. We use the word heart often to mean our emotions, but in the Bible, it means so much more than that. It means your imagination, your emotion, your will. It means who you are. The gospel reading this morning. What's the greatest commandment? It's to love God with all of your heart. And it's to love your neighbor as yourself, the second one. This is why in the book of Proverbs it says, Above all else, guard your heart, because that's the center of you. That's the wellspring of your whole life. But the fact of the matter is, our hearts don't love rightly. We love the wrong things, or we love the right things in the wrong amounts. (laughs) Our loves are all disordered. Our problem is our hearts. So that's why we've read Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 several times over the last three weeks. That that we need to be transformed as people. It's this passage of scripture that teaches us how the heart is transformed. And it's a really simple passage. It says that the heart is transformed by two avenues. By our minds... And by our bodies. That the the angle into your heart, the route into a person's heart. See, the problem with the disordered heart can is dealt with by the mind and by the body. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says that we allow God to renew our minds and we give God our bodies. And by doing those two things, we are transformed. Our hearts will be primed to love the right things. In the right ways. So, what we've been doing over the last several weeks as we've been dealing with this issue of busyness is I haven't been dealing at all with time management issues. Instead, we've been looking at the heart. And we've been dealing with a day. And we've been dealing with a week. And we've taken both of those issues and we've said, God... Our culture has given us a whole set of assumptions about what a day is and how to use a day. But how do you teach us to use a day and what is it? So we've, we've said to God, teach us, renew our minds about what makes a day. And then we've also looked in scripture for practices so that we could use a day to offer our bodies to God in time. And then we did the same thing with a week. Our, our culture gives us a whole set of assumptions about what a week is and how to rhythm a week. But scripture gives us a different set of assumptions. 
So how do we change our hearts when it comes to time? Well, we allow God to change our mind and our practices about a day and about a week. And this morning, we're going to finish the series up by looking at a year. How can we move through a year in a way that opens our hearts to the transforming power of God's Spirit? Turn in your Bibles to this chapter Stephanie read to us, Exodus chapter 12. It's way back at the beginning. If you need to use your table of contents, that's okay. Exodus chapter 12. Look at the first verse. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Now, earlier we, we heard this whole chapter read. God had gotten deeply involved in the history of the people that are now called Israel. He had miraculously delivered them from their slavery to the Egyptians. Next to creation, this is the most monumental defining moment of God in the world. Where God reveals himself to the world. And so God says, Israel, look, after creation, this is the most powerful way that I revealed to the world. So I want you to shift your whole calendar around this. I want you to change everything about the way you count a year based on what I've just done in your life. And from now on, your calendar year must begin with the anniversary of this cataclysmic event. Then notice verse 3. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And then the story goes on. Drop down to verse 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. So in verses 1 and 2, God says, start your year on the anniversary of this event. And in verse 3, he begins to lay out a ritual that Israel was to practice every year in order to remember how really important this event was. Now notice something. God makes no bones about making a claim on Israel's time. I mean, you don't just step into a nation and say, start the year here, interrupt all your work with this whole huge event that lasts for days. And God doesn't, it doesn't bother him. He, what's going on here is that he says, I'm the Lord, I've got the right. In fact, he gives Israel a whole series of festivals and and rituals and feasts and fasts. And each one are dedicated to helping them remember a powerful event in which God got involved in the nation of Israel. So what happens is that by going through the year, Israel participating in these rituals, having these feasts, having these festivals and these fasts, you know what happens? The actual year itself becomes a gift in a couple of ways. First, they throughout the year stop 
and remember in tangible ways involving food and songs and ritual and liturgy. They stop and remember what God has done. This is the psalm Fran led us in. This is how they passed on the story of God to their children. The year itself became a powerful framework within which they taught who God was based on what God had done. The second thing that's important to realize about Israel's calendar is that by practicing the year in this way, in a mysterious way, they are actually participating in the life of God. Now, there comes a moment in the life of Israel when something even more cataclysmic than the Exodus occurs. God himself incarnates in the flesh as Jesus Christ to save not just Israel, but all people from their sins. So this is the drama of Jesus Christ. In all of those rituals, in all of those actions that God had given to Israel in the Old Testament, suddenly they're seen to be not just memorials, but signposts. Not only were they pointing back to something God had done, but they were actually pointing forward to something more amazing that God would do that would trump everything else and reveal everything else as a mere shadow of the real thing. Everything has been pointing to Jesus. Jesus, in fact, is the Passover lamb of Exodus 12. The yearly ritual instituted in Exodus 12, that's when Jesus died on the cross. He he took that whole ritual and embodied it and lived it out on a cosmic level, not just on a national level. In Christ, God was not only rescuing Israel from slavery, bondage, God was rescuing the whole world, you and me, from our slavery to sin and death. You could go on and on through the other festivals. This is why once Jesus lives and dies and is resurrected and ascended into heaven, this is why multiple passages in the New Testament make it clear that it is no longer an obligation for Christians to keep the Old Testament festivals because they were all pointing to Jesus and Jesus took them in himself and fulfilled them. So turn to Romans 14, this passage that Ed read to us. Romans chapter 14. Look down, Romans chapter 14, look at verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another. While another person esteems all days alike, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the other who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So what happens here is that Paul is saying, you're not obligated anymore. But clearly people are still practicing a rhythm to their life that's been deeply informed by the Old Testament. Now, Paul doesn't condemn them for doing that, but he also doesn't say you have to keep doing that. So you know what happens? Over the next several centuries, 
Christians decided it was really wise what God taught us to do in the Old Testament. To interrupt our year with rituals that reinforce and teach our children and ourselves what God has done. And if we can do that, not only will we learn what God has done better, we will actually participate in the life of God. What happened is that these Christians had wisely learned that the shape of the year must not be taken for granted. That care and deliberation about the span of time across a year is really wise. And what they had done is they had learned that how we measure and mark a year tells a story. And that story has the power to shape our hearts. So over the first few centuries of the life of the church, Christians from a wide variety of cultures didn't stop living their years in a way that told the story of God. They just adjusted their years so that it told the whole story of God. What they did was to adjust their calendars to embody the work of God in Christ. They developed a Christ-centered choreography to their year. Not as an obligation, but as an act of wisdom. And what they did was they developed this Christ-centered choreography with rich and thick rituals that enabled them to pass on the faith to to their children. That enabled them to deeply immerse their lives in the work of God in the world. Now like our passage in Romans says, you don't have to follow the Christian calendar. You're not a sinner if you don't. And you're not holier than others if you do. But what we must learn from the Old Testament practice of the year is this. Number one, God has a claim on our time. And number two, you must pay attention to the shape of your year. And if you don't pick the Christian calendar, you are living by a calendar. Are you comfortable with the calendar you're living by? Now, I'm not saying you have to. I'm just saying it is powerful. If it was powerful enough for God to use it to shape Israel, time is powerful. I believe, and the reason I've done this whole series, is that how you use time is the most powerful mechanism for shaping your heart. And you can confess all kinds of things about God. But if your mind and your body engage with time in counterproductive ways, no matter what you confess, your heart will be shaped in unhealthy ways. And so what I'm going to do this morning is commend to you a wise approach to the year. You don't have to take it if you don't want to. Here goes. I'm going to sum up. The Christian year that's developed over the past 2,000 years. All right? It's not something I invented. It's not something the Anglicans invented. It's developed. It was solid by the 7th century. It was in development up until then. And what we're practicing now is basically unchanged since the 7th century. Whether you're Orthodox or Catholic or Lutheran or Anglican or, I mean, it just, it goes, or wherever you are in this world. It's really quite an amazing thing. Here goes. First, the Christian year does not begin on January 1, right? 
It's, it, we're decentered from the popular, right? The Christian year begins with Advent. Begins four Sundays before Christmas Day. That's Advent. It's these weeks leading up to Christmas. And during this time, we prepare ourselves for Christmas. Not by shopping, buy lots of gifts, right? I mean, that's one way of preparing for Christmas. But no, what we're doing is we're looking to Israel as Israel was preparing for the birth of Jesus. And and we say, how did God train Israel to prepare for the birth of Jesus? And God, we're going to learn from that how to prepare for your return. And that preparation is a process of repentance. So like Israel, we open our eyes to the darkness around us and within us and we lament the suffering of the world and we cry out for God to come and put the world to rights. That's Advent. And then we have Christmas. And we unleash a roar of rejoicing. We rejoice with angels and shepherds that a Savior is born. And and listen, in the Christian calendar, it's not just one day. It overflows into 12 days. You know that song, The 12 Days of Christmas? Christmas in the Christian calendar is a season. It lasts 12 days. It doesn't lead up to Christmas. It starts on Christmas Day and then goes for 12 days. I mean, after all, how can you do justice to the glorious impossible in just one day? God himself taking on flesh to rescue us and the cosmos from slavery to sin and decay and death. See, the season of Christmas is not what Walmart says. It's not the time from Halloween to Christmas Day. Notice what, the, what our commercial society has done. It's preempted the repentant pre- preparation because it's not very marketable. <laughs> and then Christmas ends on Epiphany, January 6th, Epiphany. Christmas is over. It's culminated in the Feast of the Epiphany. Big word. Epiphany means appearing or manifestation or aha. It's basically what it is. This is when we commemorate the coming of the wise men. The wise men, they were not Israelites. They were from another part of the world and they were aha. God has come in the flesh. And so in Epiphany, we do that. And then on the next Sunday, we focus on Christ's baptism. We pay particular attention to how his baptism reveals who he is. And then, on the, and then for a few Sundays after that, we turn to his transfiguration and see how that reveals for who he is. And in all of this, we're immersing ourselves in the story of Jesus' life so that he can be manifested to us. And then we get to Lent. Forty days To prepare for Easter. See, Lent is a season of humility. It's a season of self-examination. And again, by following the life of Jesus through the time of Lent, we learn what it means to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to follow Him. The last week of Lent is called Holy Week. And for one whole week, we relive the devastating sequence of events that took place in a minor city of the Roman Empire 20 centuries ago. We enter this story through dramatic liturgies that trace their roots all the way back to the 4th century. And it's almost as if we were in Jerusalem waving palm branches, right? On on Palm Sunday, we start out in the parking lot. Well, it'll be in a different place. And we have palm branches and we're reliving that story, shouting out Hosanna. But our shouts of Hosanna soon ring hollow. 
Because we know that by week's end, the crowd that shouted Hosanna will abandon him. And by week's end, we will have sinned and betrayed him too. And on Thursday of Holy Week, he hosts us at a table of love and forgiveness, even though he knows that our betrayal is coming. And then he's arrested. And on Good Friday, we fast and we contemplate his betrayal, his torture and crucifixion. And we shudder before the mystery of our redemption in Christ. And then Holy Saturday, we're quiet. We don't work, we don't do things because Christ is in the tomb and we're reliving in our very bodies and the way we function in our house what it must have been like for Christ to be in the tomb. And we wait for the light of Easter. Thursday's arrest, Friday's crucifixion, Saturday's silence, and then Sunday's glory. At last, Christ is risen, and so are we. In our church, we have this great tradition. We gather on a hillside in Dayton, and we proclaim. David Cooper has this big bell. Have you ever seen this ginormous bell? He rings it when the sun comes up. We proclaim that on a similar day, long ago, the eternal God lived and died as a vulnerable human being. And he was raised from the dead and he prevailed over death and it changes everything. And this is the heart, this is the center, the focal point of the Christian year. Do you see how many forces are at work to pull you out of shape? Our commercial society has elevated Christmas over Easter because it's more marketable. But Christmas isn't the center of the the Christian year. Easter is. And it doesn't take one day to celebrate Easter. It doesn't even take 12 days. It takes 50 days. If you like mimosas, one every morning. (laughs) When you wake up, if there's ever a champagne moment, it's Easter. And it goes on and on. Be very careful with that. And on the 50th day, it's Pentecost. And what do we do? We celebrate the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church in Jerusalem. And this great feast sets the stage for the rest of the year. It's called Ordinary Time, which doesn't mean everything else is extraordinary. It's actually a weird play with words. Ordinary comes from ordinal because the Sundays are counted by numbers. Ordinals, so it's the ordinal counted Sundays. It's a weird trick our English language has done to us. And that runs from the end of Easter all the way until the beginning of Advent. It's around five months. And we find ourselves like the disciples going back to the city, back to life. The resurrection has occurred, but now we live out the resurrection for the glory of God and the good of the city. You see how the Christian year tells the story of Jesus. In our fasting and feasting, in our kneeling in adoration at Christmas and following Jesus into the wilderness and singing Hosanna on Palm Sunday and sitting at Jesus' feet at the Last Supper and following Him to Calvary and singing for joy by the empty tomb. Do you see how the Christian year presents the solid and magnificent hope of the gospel? That all baptized believers, that all those in Christ, that all those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit have their sins forgiven and they have been reconciled to Christ and they are part of his kingdom that will reign forever. Lauren Winner, some of you may have heard of her. She's written a number of fascinating books about her own conversion experience 
while she was a student at an Ivy League university. In one essay she wrote on the Christian year, she says something that's captured me. She says, one of my goals in life is to inhabit the Christian year so fully that Advent will be the instinctive beginning of my year. One of my goals is to inhabit the church year so f- more fully than I inhabit the school year. So that Advent hymns, rather than new pencils, signal the beginning of the year. Why is this so important? First, I want the Christian story to shape everything I do, even how I reckon time. I want it to be truer and more essential to me than the school's calendar or the Hallmark calendar or the calendar set by the IRS. I want the rhythms of Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, Easter, Pentecost to be more basic to my life than the days on which my quarterly estimated taxes are due. And most important, almost more than anything else I've done since I've become a Christian, trying to live inside church time has formed me in the Jesus story. Jesus drew my attention to himself and the church calendar has kept it fixed on him. Church time has offered me the chance to relive and relearn Jesus' life Every year. When Janelle and I were having children and we were looking around for how to pass on the faith to our children, we discovered the Christian year. And it's the reason we're Anglicans today. And we began to just practice it in our home because we found it to be the most powerful discipling tool that we could get our hands on. But it's hard to do. Living inside the Christian year, our society has given us a lot of other calendars to live by. It tells us that the opening day of baseball, not Easter, is the high point of the spring. It tells us that the opening day of hunting season, not Advent, is the beginning of the autumn, the fall, the winter. It tells us that the days on which stores have great sales are the real red-letter days. You will not get much help for living into the calendar that the church in her great wisdom over 20 centuries, with 20 centuries of of development before that. But like the Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans, I say to you, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies to God. Find a way in your year to give your bodies to God. This is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And then you will be able to test and discern what the will of God is. You'll develop the disposition of heart that can say yes and no to things. This is how we discover a way out of our cluttered society. Learn to offer your mind and body to God. Look around. We are just ordinary people. We live quiet lives in an unremarkable place. You don't come to Harrisonburg to change the world. We're just hobbits in our shire. But listen, we might not be caught up 
in a dangerous drama like Frodo and Sam. But we live inside a big story. One that started long before our birth and that will go long, long after our death. One that's as wide as the universe and as old as eternity. The story of God centered in Jesus Christ. So learn to offer your mind and your body to God through the wise shape of your year. And you will find an approach to living the Christian life that will not only give shape to your year, but it will reach through your mind and reach through your body. And it will give shape to your heart. And you will find that it is a powerful way for the lines of your life to be curved into a script that proclaims the gospel. Let's pray.